Welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Laura Hussey and Angus Clark about the work of Hearts for Refugees. We speak about what led them both to get involved and now lead the organisation, what compassion means to them, and how charities like theirs can get bigger bang for their buck from donors by working alongside other charities and not-for-profit groups. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work For Good. Work For Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Laura Hussey and Angus Clark speaking about compassion in action. I'm delighted to be joined by Hearts for Refugees CEO Angus Clark and Chair Laura Hussey. Welcome both of you to Charity Chat. Thank you very much, Sam. Nice to be here. Thank you, Sam. Hearts for Refugees. And it's for those that don't know it, it's spelt H-E-R-T-S, which I think is a very clever name. And that's presumably that's Hearts, as in Hertfordshire. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's the, the county that the, the charity is based in. Um, right. So it, it seemed the obvious, the obvious name. For those that haven't um, heard of Hearts for Refugees, it would be interesting to find out more. So I guess take it in turns. Maybe, Laura, you first, if you share your background and kind of what has led you to get involved with Hearts for Refugees. And then we'll move on to you, Angus. I am actually, as a background, I'm a teacher um, and I still work in education and that has nothing to do with how I ended up working um, and well, volunteering really for Hearts for Refugees. It all started for me with watching the news, getting a growing sense of unease. I think we all saw the, the picture of little Alan Curdy who ended up on the beach hmm. and it was really just came to a point where I was like, I, I just need to do something. So I did what anyone would do I did a little google search and I found a couple of local charities and um for refugees were doing um a sort which is where we basically have received donations and we're just boxing them up uh, ready to go out um at that time that I got involved a lot of our donations were going to Syria um due to the conflict that was um you know it's still in quite a, a critical stage at that at that point obviously the problems are still ongoing for Syrian people and then just slowly over time just sort of got more involved really so Angus was obviously sort of running the show back then when I first got involved so I started just doing things like sorts um then I started doing festival salvage which I'm sure Angus will tell you all about in more detail at some point it's his baby and then went on one of the trips over to Northern France to help out the charities there and just slowly sort of became more and more involved. So, yes, it's it's um, I think Angus was there uh, earlier than me. And, you know, I guess I've been trying to do as much as I can while sort of working full time. And I've also got kids and, and things like that to to look out for. But that's basically the background of, of how I got involved. And when you say Northern France, was, was that because we heard about in Calais, they, they called it in the media, at least they called it the jungle, I think, didn't they? There's kind of a large kind of camp for refugees. 
actually no i by the time i um made my way to france their jungle had been um disbanded taken mm. apart uh, by the french police and so for as long as i've been involved it's been much you know the 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 camps don't last as long basically they they prevent any of them setting up any camp any permanence really um they're lucky to go more than a week or two without the french police coming and and ripping up the camp basically mm. for for want of a better description and you know some people will run run away from the police some people will get rounded up and put on buses and tend to various centres so it's a completely different existence for those people than it was when the jungle was in place but I'm sure again Angus can can tell you more about the jungle so it's kind of a it it, they're still um, living in tents and still trying to create a community feel where they are but it's it's very very much more difficult. And also just to stay with you for a minute Laura before we hand over to Angus but with with the fact that you've got your own children and also that you work with children in your in your work as a teacher do you think that did that have a did that have kind of resonate with you when you were thinking about wanting to help another cause and getting involved in the in the charity in the first place do you think kind of wanting to help children specifically or thinking about families being separated from children and things like that i think that it was really just culmination of lots of things that were happening politically um Mm. in the uk i think it was so the fact my kids were starting to get to a um starting to get older so it was easier for me to do more than when they were little but certainly that that picture of alan curdy on the beach will stay with me forever and i think that was the defining moment where I think I just thought I can't actually just sit at home and do nothing, you know, and just think, oh, I'm glad it's not me. I think I just got to a point where I didn't turn away anymore. Mm. Um, so I think it was build up. But yeah, I mean, prob- I mean, I, I do, you know, work with children. I do believe that families should be reunited. But actually, it's about, I think it's about more than that. I think it's just about. I don't know if it's because I wasn't born in this country. I was born in Singapore. I've always had a British passport, um, but I studied languages. I've lived abroad. I've, I don't feel the same. You know, I would I'd say I'm patriotic to a certain extent, but I don't feel the same tied to nation state, and I, mm. I don't feel borders are that important. So it's all sorts of things, really, just coming together. Angus, with with you, so so Laura's already said, you know, you've been involved in this longer than she has. And so when that happened, did you see a noticeable um, change in terms of people wanting to support the work of Hearts for Refugees? Yeah, um, that was actually probably the point where Hearts for Refugees was born. Right. Um, At that time, that was 2015. And that was when the Syrian war was really at its height, and there was the mass, what's become known as the refugee crisis, um, when there was a you know a huge influx of people to Europe, and it was it was in the news all the time then, uh, and there was a lot of sympathy, as there, as it generally is, you know, from from certainly from Europe and and very much from the British public as well, um, you know, we are very empathetic 
much more so than than is generally portrayed in the media. And yeah, we do want to help people. You know, that's that's our nature, and we have a long history of doing that. Um, so yeah, so that was what actually got me involved. Um, Hearts for Refugees didn't exist as an entity back then when that first happened. It was what got me looking around in the same sort of way as Laura. I was, I mean, again, I had I had no connection to charity work at all. Um, I worked in the metals industry, you know, completely removed from anything in the third sector. Mm. The, I, I'd actually I'd had a car accident and I was I was recovering at home, so I had some time. Saw this on the news, you know, was appalled by what I was seeing, and I thought, well, you know. I can maybe do some volunteering work while I recover. Mm. And um, that's what I did. And, you know, looked around on the internet and met up with some other people who had had the same sort of thoughts. Before I knew it, I was going off to France with half a dozen people I'd never met before. And we were volunteering in what was the what was known as the big jungle or became known as the big jungle. At that point, there was something like 10,000 people wow. um, living in that camp. The name actually is interesting. It, it was actually given by the refugees themselves. Okay. Because that was they, they felt they were treated like animals. Mm. Um, so they actually you know, took ownership of the name, the jungle. It wasn't set up um, by the French government. It, it, it was people yeah. essentially kind of congregating, for want of a better term, in that place together. And, and really seeking a better life away from conflicts and whatever. It, it came about actually from the, it, it was a few years earlier. There used to be a processing centre in Kelly at Songap. Mm-hmm. Um, President Sarkozy, in collaboration with the British government of the day, closed that centre down, um, which meant there was no um, nowhere for refugees to have their claims processed. Mm. Um, so it came out of that. And the, the, the local government in Kelly actually gave the site of the jungle as a place for the refugees to go and told them that if they went there, they would be they would leave them alone, which, of course, was not the case. What is that space like, Angus? What, what does it look like? Is it kind of barren land? Or are there kind of thing, were there yeah, things the, there? And... At the, no, the, at the time, it was actually the site. Uh, it's, it, it, there's a chemical factory that overlooks it, and it's right on the edge of the coast, um, so it's very exposed, and the motorway runs through the middle. Um, between the chemical factory and the and what was the site of the camp, it's, it's since been totally redeveloped into. I think it's actually a bird sanctuary now, which is somewhat ironic because it's now the home for migratory birds. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, we were when we first went across there, we were we were astonished and, and horrified. Mm. Um, it was, you know, unbelievable to see something like that in in Europe. You know, 22 miles from the, the UK coast. Um, and it really was like something you would see in, you know, a, 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 after an earthquake in Africa or something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it reminded you of. And, you know, we, we, we felt, right, OK, we're here. We'll, we'll do what we can to help. Uh, you know, the governments will be along and the, the, the big international NGOs will be along and it'll all be sorted out in, you know, five or six months and we can go home again and pick up our normal lives. Um, but of course, that's never actually never actually happened. It's never came to pass. Um, and it's been left to small organisations, small charities to um, to basically do the work of two governments, the French and the UK government, to try and support these people. Because, uh, you know, ultimately we, we're a humanitarian organisation. Mm. You know, we're not there to judge why these people are there. We're, we're just there because we think everybody deserves, you know, to have a, a decent life and, and you know, not, not um, be deprived of the basics, uh, like shelter, food. 
so yeah, so that that was how it started, and um, I never actually went back to work in the metals industry. <laughs> um, it, um, it it went from there. Um, we came back. We did some more trips. We got more. I mean, back in 2015, donations um, were incredible. You know, there was so much stuff coming in from the public. It was it was amazing to see. So we had, you know, we easily had enough to do regular trips. And you know, from there, we set up the charity in 2016 and started going further afield. Started sending aid to Greece as well and to Syria. Um, and working with other with other charities and groups, and it's it's just kind of gone from there. So in those early days of the charity, was it that you was there enough support out there that it was relatively easy to get people to give you what you needed to go out there, or or was it, has it always been a bit of a slog? I mean, a lot of the small charities listening to this will probably have had the experience of whatever cause they're supporting. There, it's a bit of a slog probably from day one. I suppose it would be the same, even with that all that kind of goodwill that you had and. And that kind yeah. of emergency attention. Um, certainly, uh, in, the, in the very early days, it was from a donations point of view, it was it was, it was almost too easy. Um, we were absolutely inundated, you know, with people giving things. Not necessarily always what we needed, um, right? Yeah. Which is something that still continues. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, we, it's it's definitely tailed off quite significantly, you know, since since those days. In terms of donations and in terms of support um, financially, we do have to work a lot harder at it now. And, and Laura, from your point of view, how do you go about, um, how does uh, Hearts Refugees go about uh, seeking opportunities to further the, your work without spreading your resources too thin? Because I'd imagine that's quite a challenge. Yes, it is. And actually, um, it's one we haven't fully solved because we often find ourselves feeling like we have spread our resources too thin. Um, I mean, I suppose um, the last couple of years have been particularly interesting because obviously during the pandemic, we have to completely rethink how we operate because obviously making trips um, abroad was not possible. Um, and so we had to sort of change how we operated a bit. And we also then um, started to look about how we could support um, those people who'd actually made the journey to the UK, mm. which previously we had not got involved in because um, there were enough other charities we felt doing that. It wasn't really what, what we did. Um, so during the pandemic, we um, started to work in some of the initial accommodation. Which, so when people first arrive and, and, and request asylum, they, they sort of um, sort of go into the system and they're uh, um, provided with initial accommodation, um, which is supposed to be very short term. But actually, through the pandemic, um, they weren't able to find um, more long term accommodation. So we ended up working with a local hotel on quite a long term, actually, um, basis, which was, yeah. yeah, it was it was um, lovely in some ways and really depressing in others. You know, it was lovely because, um, you know, we were able to meet uh, lots of the people and hear about their journeys and just be being able to give them a um, a friendly face in what was quite a difficult time, both because they're obviously are in now this new country, but also because mm. everything was so different during the pandemic. 
Um, and so I guess that's been a new thing for us in recent years is sort of um, supporting in the UK. But going back to the bit about spreading our resources too thin, we soon realised that um, a lot of, you know, we tend to, as um, Angus said, we, we are a humanitarian organisation. We have tended to focus on making sure people have the those basics they need for you know just to really show them the respect and dignity that any human deserves so some of these people turning up would perhaps only have the clothes they were in and so we you know make sure they had clothes and hygiene products shoes you know it might be that there was a young family there so they'd need nappies things like that but actually the the main thing that people wanted was English lessons and you know support to progress their asylum applications and things like that because I think they're assigned a lawyer and actually that side of it and um, that became a difficulty for us because that's not really our core uh, thing we don't have a set up writing lessons we don't have any legal team um, to provide legal support so then we became more about signposting to other organizations that do that you know because it's it's not our skill set and and you know, it's better to sort of find others that are. Um, the other thing we did during the pandemic is we, um, if you remember right back to the beginning, masks were very difficult to get a hold of. Um, yeah. And rightly, they were being um, kept for <laughs> medical professionals and those working in, you know, uh, care homes, that kind of thing, and, and as it should be. And we became aware that a lot of the humanitarian workers, the aid workers in Greece and France, Greece in particular, weren't able to support the refugees in camps without masks. So we actually started a little offshoot called Masks for Refugees and had a team of people who were making uh, fabric masks, which we then sent over to uh, Greece primarily. I think Angus will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so we managed to make over a thousand masks so that we could make sure that the humanitarian work carried on over there. So, you know, I guess it just, you know, we always just try and make sure that we're meeting those. But I always talk to friends about if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that making sure that that bottom level is absolutely covered so that then, you know, these people can go on to start thinking about the next stage without worrying about food or clothing or warmth uh, the the masks thing was actually really good and i think it ended up being something like over 1600 we sent to to athens in the end um we, and that was actually a contact that we had through the refugee charity network when we used to we actually had a at one point we had a deal with a shipping company in enfield and we used to send boxes of aid um, to Athens, and they were distributed out to the islands. There was a there was a high population of refugees in the islands, and like Lesbos, Samos, etc. And we could actually send a, a banana box of aid uh, to anywhere in Greece. You know, the organisation of your choice for six pounds, uh, which was great. Yeah, um, just by consolidation, um, we could put them into pallets um, and send them off. You know, so. You know, an individual might not be able to afford £250 to send a whole pallet, but if they could afford £6 to send a box, we could get it there for them. Um, so that was, that was a really good example, actually, of the collaboration um, and, you know, making the most of those resources. Like you say, you know, if you, to do, try and do that ourselves, there was no way we could have done it. But working with others, um, then it was something that was actually achievable.
And I guess there was this sense, wasn't there, during the pandemic that obviously a lot of things changed and you talked about the hotel that you had a relationship with um, because presumably they didn't have guests staying there. So they were potentially more open. I mean, not just talking about this hotel, but generally I know that homeless, um, at the, right at the beginning of the pandemic, my understanding is all homeless people were housed in hotels and other premises. And it was kind of um, frustrating, really, I think, for, for a lot of us to kind of then see that after a few months, that quietly stopped. And then again, you see homeless people on the streets. And there's a lot of reports that I've seen and, and listened to, other podcasts I've listened to, uh, that have uh, said from lots of different accounts that that was brilliant, that that worked really well. Presumably the same thing happened with you guys in this relationship with hotel or hotels and, uh, and, and housing refugees, did it? Um, yes. I think that the, from a human point of view, it was very, very difficult. Um, they, there was no communal space um, in the hotel. So, so it wasn't desirable. It's not a desirable long-term solution. It's that, not no. like, you know, this was like the Hilton going, oh, let's open our doors um, and, and let people use presidential suite. Mm. It was um, a, a fairly, it's the, the, the initial accommodation does tend to be fairly shoddy. And, you know, one family that really stays in my mind is, was, um, uh, they had two children, young boys, and we had, we bought them some um, uh, toys, so they had toys. Um, and I remember I bought someone had donated a sort of play mat, you know, that has like a road structure on it, and you can kind of zoom the cars around, and that would have been great. And they couldn't take it because it was a family of four in one hotel room. And he said, "Well, they're having to do their schoolwork on um, the bed. We're having to eat on the bed. There's just no way I can put this floor mat mm. on the bed. It's unhygienic." their meals you know were brought to the room because there was no communal space for them to eat i think probably because of covid although i suspect it's still the case now it is it's not changed and that also makes what we yeah we, it also makes what we like to do really difficult so um what we don't like to do is just kind of take a bag of clothes and say oh just be grateful we've given you some clothes what we like to do is um, and what works best, and some of most, all our partner um, companies do this, is they allow people a choice of what they, you know, uh, for, from what they have. Obviously, it's mm. not necessarily a hugely wide choice, but just that dignity of being able to choose which pair of jeans or choose which pair of trainers from what's available and just try and provide a really ordinary experience. So I know that. That's one of the things that's happened on the borders of Ukraine. One of the uh, charities we've supported, they've set up a shop so that people who've lost everything can not feel so much that they're relying on handouts. They can get that kind of shop experience and it just helps people just feel a bit more normal. So with this hotel situation, you know, it ended up, I probably looked like some dodgy market trader. I don't know. I used to turn up and have all the clothes in my the boot of my car and then they could come and we'd chat and, you know, they could choose clothes and then very often they'd bring me out a little cup of coffee or something to say thank you and just show that hospitality um, and, and gratitude in that way. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's um, yes, I think, I think a lot of these 
accommodation places are are on well you I don't think you see them on 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 holiday brochures let's put it that way is it kind of a short-term solution I suppose it sounds like we need a longer term we definitely need a longer-term solution How has the war in Ukraine affected your work, both in terms of delivering against your mission and helping to change the perception that the public have of refugees? As I mentioned before, it's, I mean, it's an appalling you know, situation that should never happen. But what it has done from, the, from our perspective is, is really brought refugees back into the news again um, and really lifted the profile. And again, it's really demonstrated the um, the, the empathy um, and the will to help that you know that is you know sort of instilled in the British public you know and is there you know you can see that with how many people opening their houses you know willing to take people in. It's notable, of course, that this has happened for Ukraine, but not for other nationalities um, who are in exactly the same situation. You know, and you know Syrians at the hands of the mm. Russians as well. From our point of view, we we've had um, a couple of very successful fundraisers. And that's allowed us to help not only Ukrainians, but other refugees. I'll let Laura talk about this because it's more, more her sort of area. Um, but yeah, certainly from our point of view, it's, it's made quite a difference. So I think the biggest thing that's been amazing for us has been a engagement of our local schools. So um, a local primary school had um, their school council had said they wanted to do something mm -hmm. for Ukraine. They called, wanted to call the day Unite for Ukraine. And the head teacher got in touch with me because actually um, one of his governors is a friend of mine um, and she'd mentioned uh, me. So they got in touch and they said, we want to unite for Ukraine. So obviously I replied saying that's amazing. Just so you know, if it's called Unite for Ukraine Day, we can only use the money for Ukraine. And obviously refugees come from lots of countries. Um, and he went back to the two young students who particularly were passionate about this. And they turned around and went, OK, we'll change the day to reach out for refugees which was astonishing. So we had over 50 local Hertfordshire schools take part. Wow. Um, after the initial, I know, the head teacher was brilliant at just emailing all the schools. Um, we raised with gift aid, certainly at least 30,000 pounds from all of these amazing schools, just doing, they wore blue and yellow, which also were the Hertfordshire colors, which is brilliant. And they did cake sales, all sorts, and also did some learning around refugees. I did a video assembly, and also went in person to the original school that had come up with the idea. But I think the point was, it started a conversation. It allowed me then to do an assembly and kind of talk to them about it's not just Ukraine. And people come from all sorts of countries. And also to kind of widen the topic a bit more beyond just war, that there are actually other reasons why people might leave a country. It could be because... Um, you know, something like sexuality, whatever, it, you know, lots of different reasons people could leave, natural disaster, and so on. Um, and from that, it just created a lovely dialogue in local schools. And we're, we're really lucky. We've got um, an author, Anjali Ralph, who wrote a book, who's coming to do a um, a book um, like a presentation on on the refugee week in St Albans and it sold out because we sent the link to all the local schools so I think we have to remember that on those days when we get a bit frustrated that some refugees are being treated differently to others actually children get it you know children just instantly understood that there's no difference and 
I think then you can just widen that dialogue. So I think it's been absolutely horrifying, but has been really heartwarming to see the response from our country. And I just echo what Angus said at the beginning, that our country has a long track record of being very, very giving um, and compassionate, which isn't always reflected by our politicians and media. Laura Hussey. Angus Clark, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Big thank you there to Laura Hussey and Angus Clark for sharing their experiences and expertise with us here on Charity Chats. Compassion is a powerful emotion. We all know this. And it certainly moved Angus and Laura to support refugees following the start of the Syrian civil war. We see it too in all charities where a founder or group of founders are moved to help a situation or group, even when there's no personal connection to that situation or group. And we see that throughout history. As Angus said, when the work that Hearts for Refugees was also popular among the media, there was a boon in support from the public. This is not so much the case anymore as time has passed and while refugees continue to suffer around the world and Hearts for Refugees work has continued, it has been the recent invasion of Ukraine and displacement of further millions of Ukrainians that has led to a new boost of support for their work. It can sometimes feel like a privilege to be part of a cause. I'm sure we've all felt that at some point. A cause that is making a difference in the world. Sometimes it feels like a mere drop in the ocean of need. How do we avoid the doubts that our efforts are making enough of an impact? Perhaps we just get on with the doing and remind ourselves in those moments of doubt that it is not enough to not do harm and that we must do all that we can to help others and make the world a better place. Laura made the point that covering the bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is something that drives her in her work with Hearts for Refugees. This bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is the physiological needs that humans have, the things we all need to survive. For many of us, it might be hard to fathom what it must be like to be without food, water, shelter or light, despite many of us supporting charities who do a good job in explaining that, what it's like for the people they're helping. It might be so unfathomable for some that it is hard to grasp how they could possibly help those in that situation. This is why it is so important to keep stories of real people and share these as widely as possible. Both Laura and Angus were particularly moved by the death of Alan Kurdi, as would have been the case for many of us who saw the coverage of Alan Kurdi's death. While we may not have been moved to support a refugee charity in the way that Angus and Laura did, it certainly may have moved us to do something. And there's a general point here that we should all remember, which is remembering the individuals and talking about the individuals is a way for us to focus our efforts and those of the people we're aiming to move to doing things that communally we may never have thought possible individually. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work For Good. Work For Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. 
Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders, who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. Also, like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. And Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it for me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye bye.